0: today, open your Bibles to so go ahead and First uh, Samuel chapter 17. Now, it's been a little while since I've preached. It's been since uh, fall. And after my last sermon, uh, Cheryl, Cheryl Balcom shared something on Facebook with me, you know, asking Levi, what did you get out of the sermon today? And I didn't talk about marriage at all, but Levi said that you can be very awkward and still get married. So thanks for the confidence boost, buddy. I appreciate it. All right. 1 Samuel 17. This is the story of David and Goliath. I'm so excited to share this story with you for the first time because I'm sure nobody's heard it before. There are not too many narratives in the Bible that are more popular than this one. You could have no clue about God, and you've probably heard this term David and Goliath. You know what we're talking about, and and I promise you, as we get into uh, this story, uh, you know. You're going to hear this in March Madness tournaments coming up. This is something that we use in our common uh, parlance here. And I promise you, this is one of my favorite stories. I loved hearing it in Sunday school. I still love it to this day. I promise I'm going to get wound up a couple of times. So I'm just going to get into it. First uh, Samuel 17, starting at verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sokah, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soca and Azekah in Ephes Damim. All right. Now this is a big deal. If you were a good Hebrew listening to this story, you'd be like, what? All right, what does this mean? All right, and this reminds me of the story of the Doolittle raids in World War II. Now, I was familiar with this from this terrible movie that came out around 2000, Pearl Harbor. It's a Ben Affleck love story. I'm not proud of it, okay? But I remember this particular line. It really stuck with me. It was the commander, the leader of these bombing raids saying that... uh, you know, when Japan hit us at Pearl Harbor, they came at us with a sledgehammer. And these bombing raids we're going to do, it's not going to be much more than a pinprick, but it's going to be right in their hearts, okay? And this is what it means when the Philistines were at Soka, it was right at the heart of Israel. All right, so we have our uh, map here. First uh, Samuel 17, all right, so we have our map here. All right, so we have Soka right here in Ezekiel. This is where it was happening, the Valley of Eda. And so you see how close this is between Bethlehem and Jerusalem. Bethlehem is the city of David. Jerusalem, not not yet the capital, but that is, you could see how close into their territory. So this was shocking. The Philistines were fighting. It was right at the heart of Israel. And also, the Valley of Elah. If you remember Samson, back in the book of Judges, Samson kills a whole bunch of Philistines. He was the judge who was going to be dealing with the Philistines on God's behalf, and The Valley of Elah, it's not where he's from, but that was the stomping grounds, all right? So there is a lot. This is is just demoralizing the fact that the Philistines had advanced this far. It's important for us to know this. And then we get our antagonist entering into the story, Goliath. It says he is six cubits and a span tall. Now, the Bible stops short of actually calling him a giant, but... Six cubits in a span. Now, a span, in case you're wondering, it's about the length. If you outstretch your hands, it's about the length between your thumb and your pinky. All right, that's about a span. Uh, Spam. Span, all right. And if we do the unit conversion, Goliath was between nine and ten feet tall. All right, so we get it. Goliath was a big dude. And the writer says that he was wearing a bronze helmet that he had a coat of mail that weighed 5,000 shekels. That's about 125 pounds. That is a lot of weight for armor. And we continue to read that he had bronze armor on his legs, a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders, and the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. That's about 15 pounds. Just this tip of his spear was 15 pounds. If I have a 15 pound shot put in my hand and you're about six feet away from me and I hurl it at your chest, I'm going to do some damage. All right. So this thing being attached, not even to mention to the spirit was attached to, going through the air, and I don't care what sort of armor you were wearing, you would be annihilated by this thing. All right. And so I hear about Goliath and I have this picture in my head. It's something like this. All right. <laughs> And so Goliath, he calls out to them. All right, please don't do the Andre the Giant voice in your head, okay? But uh, it might be distracting. Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and serve us. I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and Israel all heard the words of this Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, if you remember back in 1 Samuel chapter 9, when Saul was being chosen to be the king of Israel, part of his description, how they were describing the physical attributes of Saul, this is what you do, is that he says he was a head taller than everybody else. Because that's what you do. When you want a king, you want a leader, you choose the biggest, baddest dude you have. And. Uh, so when the Philistines are sending forth their biggest guy, their champion, to fight, what do you do in response? You send your biggest guy out to go meet him in the, in the battle. Now, how tall was Goliath? All right, Goliath was between 9 and 10 feet tall. And I measured this, all right, so visual element time. So we, we have Goliath here, all right. We're going to go ahead and tack him on here and measure. This is how tall he was. Let's raise this up. All right. Between nine and ten feet tall. See if I can get to stay. This is earlier today. All right, nine ten feet tall. Alright, he's up there. He's not up there anymore. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> Won't stay. Have other things to do. Alright, so that's how tall Goliath was. And you have this scene: Goliath is calling out the men, and the men look at Saul, say, Saul, you're the biggest one. Alright, go ahead. You got him. And Saul's like, I want no part of that. Are you kidding me? And Saul was king. He could have commanded somebody else to go out and meet Goliath on the field. But if that man lost, the Israelites lost everything. And so we read in verse 16 that for 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. 40 days of this guy calling you out, calling you a coward, challenging your manhood. All right, You can imagine the tension and just the out-and-out depression that was around the Israelite camp. And so now David enters the scene. David, the son of Jesse, who lived in Bethlehem. And Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul into the battle. And it says, uh, you know, he had eight sons, and three of them followed him into battle. It says that David was going back and forth between Saul and Jesse. Now, David knew Saul. If you read 1 Samuel 16, uh, the, the previous chapter... It says that Saul was tormented by a spirit from the Lord and that David, he had just been chosen somewhat in secret to be the next king of Israel. And Saul was being tormented by a spirit from the Lord and David would play his lyre and it would comfort Saul. So David was still in Saul's service from time to time because the dude played a mean guitar, all right? He was really good and, uh, and it comforted Saul. So we know that David was very familiar with Saul and vice versa. And so we don't know how long it's been since David had last seen Saul, we know it's been at least 40 days. Because Jesse, David's father, says to him, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp for your brothers. Also, take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. Back then when armies were traveling, they didn't travel the way that we might move our troops today. All right, They didn't have a 70, 80-pound backpack filled with MREs, dry, freeze-dried foods, an extra set of clothes, ammo, everything. They, they didn't do that. They had to rely on things like this. This was Jesse's contribution to the war effort. He would send his son to go bring provisions. That's what they relied on uh, to, in order to be able to continue to be in battle. And so uh, Jesse's sending this along with David saying, all right, make sure all my sons are fed. Also, give this extra food to their commanders so that they will be looked at favorably so that their commanding officers will give them preferred spots in the battle line. And I just want to break this down because I think that this is important, if not at least a little interesting, It says that David got up early in the morning, verse 20, that he took the provisions and he went to where Saul encamped. Now, he's carrying an ephah of grain. That's about three-fifths of a bushel, and if you do the math, that's about 36 pounds of grain. And he's carrying 10 loaves and 10 cheeses. Now, I don't know how much a loaf or a cheese would weigh that time, but let's just say one to two pounds each, all right? So that's another... you know, 40-ish pounds. And that's, if we even just round down, he's carrying about 70 pounds of provisions with him. Now, and there's not a lot of mention in the Bible about the beasts of burden that Jesse's house may have had. We know that they had a donkey. I, I'm just, but I'm just saying, I'm thinking David is hoofing it, carrying 70 pounds of provisions, traveling out to meet Saul's army. And he's going out from Bethlehem to Soca. I think if we have our map here. All right. So from Bethlehem to To Soka. That distance is about 15 miles. It says David got up early in the morning and he was there in time to hear Goliath's taunt. Now, Goliath was probably pretty lazy. All right. Takes him a while to get all that armor on. He had to eat his breakfast, read the newspaper, get his coffee. All right. Now let's just say if he's getting out there at 9 30 in the morning. 9, 9.30 in the morning, he's getting out and making his taunt. David got, David got up, he left Bethlehem, he traveled 15 miles carrying 70 pounds of provisions for his brothers. He was there in time to hear Goliath make his uh, his rants. And I don't think it's too much of a leap to say, I say all this to point out that David was a tremendous athlete. All right, He was a specimen. And we read further on this chapter and last week's chapter when we're introduced to this character of David... It's like they can't help but talk about how stinking good-looking this guy was, all right? He's ruddy. He's handsome. He has these—you just get lost in his eyes, all right? So David was prom king, and we have this handsome—he is athlete. He plays a mean guitar, all right? So I figure when I think of David, you know, this is what came to my mind. Thank you. Okay, thank you. This is the reaction I was hoping for, all right? Because I put this picture up deliberately, I'm not proud of this, I just see this picture, I kind of want to punch this guy, all right? This actually, this feeling will actually play a role in the story coming up. Now, I, you want to encapsulate any disdain you have for him, you can actually understand more of what it was like to be an Israelite when David came to your camp that day. All right, I have to get this off the screen. All right. Uh, David came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things, the provisions that he brought. He left them with the keeper of the baggage, ran to the ranks, and went and greeted his brothers. And he talked with them, and behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. David heard him, and all the men of Israel, when they saw this man, fled from him, and they were still much afraid. The 81st time Goliath did this little shtick, they were still terrified, saying, nope, not going to do it. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and the king is going to enrich the man who kills him with great riches, and will give him his daughter, and make his father's house free in Israel, meaning free from taxation. I mean, I can just imagine Saul keeps upping the ante a little bit. All right, somebody kill this guy. Nope. Nope. I'll make you very rich. Nope. I'll give you my daughter and make you very rich. And just, you don't ever have to pay taxes again. He just keeps upping the ante. And then, so I don't know what was going to be next on the list, but David comes in. All right, David, imagine David looking like Bieber, all right? Uh, He says to the man who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away this reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And David's saying, forget about the reward. I don't care this. Who is this guy who defies God? Now, please keep in mind that when David is calling Goliath uncircumcised, he's not making comments on male genitalia. He's just making commentary. He's pointing out that Goliath was not a part of God's covenant people. All right? And David's oldest brother, Eliab, he hears David and he says, Why have you come down? With whom have you left those sheep in the wilderness? little boy. All right. I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And again, I picture, it's not hard when I picture David looking like that, it's not too hard to get impatient and not like the kid very much. And Elia was accusing David of this terrible intention that we even see today. Like when you drive by a car wreck, we have a thing that's actually called what gapers or gawkers delay on roads because we can't help. We have to look and see the gore. I don't know what we're hoping for. And that's what David is being accused of. You're just coming down to watch some action because you're tired. You're bored, you know, looking after sheep. And David hasn't had to endure 40 days of this giant coming out and, tor- and tormenting you day and night. And so this teenager shows up, he's just running his mouth. You can understand some of the reactions that are coming. And word of David saying about this gets around camp very quickly, and Saul sends for David. And David tells Saul, let no man's heart fall because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul says to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, or boy, depending on your translation, and he has been a man of war from his youth. Saul's saying, look, this guy was like six feet tall when he was nine, all right? He's been ripping people apart since he could ever possibly do that. And so you want no part of it. Dude, sit this one out, all right? And uh, David is, this is where I think that our flannel graph and our precious moments figurines get this all wrong. Because even when I was looking up imaging imagery for the, this uh, scene, it pictures David as if he was eight or nine years old. And it's just not, not accurate. When it says he's but a youth, the word being used there is for a late youth, or boy. So David was between 16 and 19 years old. And Saul's pointing out that uh, since you're just so young, dude, you're nothing compared to Goliath. Sit this one out. And David reassures Saul, he says, When I'm a shepherd, uh, if a lion or a bear comes after one of my sheep... I have to go down and chase that lion. I have to kill it and get the sheep back. And verse 35, read this, carries a strong word of warning for our senior minister. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. All right? He's got to trim that thing. But uh, David's saying, I've killed lions and bears that were bigger than me, and Goliath is going to be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. I want to talk about David just a little bit more to set the context before we get into this fight. We read elsewhere in the Bible, I think it was about a Benjaminite, that they're talking about their skills with a sling. They can knock a hair off of your head using this thing. And so David was out in the past years looking after sheep for years by himself. So the sling, it was, it was his toy. Yes, it was a weapon, but it was his toy. He would use it to pass the time thousands and thousands of shots he would have just target practice having to do something if a sheep wandered away he didn't have a sheep dog to help him keep the sheep herded up he would have to basically use the sling knock it in the head so to go silly a little bit so he could catch it and bring it back into the fold all right so he would use this time and so I think and I say this because I think part of what David was saying he's like have you seen the size of this dude's head I can knock a bug out of the air I can hit that are you kidding me and Saul, he clothed David with his armor. We read, he put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tries in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Now, again, when I read this before, I'm thinking of Tales, Dave and the Giant Pickle. All right, the king puts his armor on Junior Asparagus and turns him like a little bronze thimble. All right, and this is what I'm thinking. But there's no mention here about the armor being too big for David. Just that he had, hadn't tested them. He wasn't used to them. I think that there's an object lesson here. David doesn't use Saul's weapons to fight God's battle. We should all know that we will not necessarily be successful using somebody else's methods to fight our spiritual battles. What worked for somebody else may not work for us, and I think that we can all learn from that. God calls us to fight with his power on his terms and not our own. So David takes off Saul's armor, he grabs his staff, and he picks out five smooth stones. Now, these stones would be about the size of a racquetball, all right? So I haven't played racquetball in a while. But uh, in David's sling, it wasn't like a slingshot that we would use with, you know, the Y-shaped, we could whip ball bearings at our brothers, uh, if you had brothers growing up like me. It would have been, it it was this little leather strap that had a a hook on the end where you could put the rock into it. And this thing, he'd be whipping around his head, it'd be moving, All right, so that rock when it left the sling, it'd be going about 90 miles an hour. All right, a rock the size of a racquetball going that fast. I don't think Goliath had a clue of what was going to happen here. And David goes out and he meets Goliath. And as Goliath sees David, he's a bit offended. All right, and I mean, you were born to defeat others in battle. You were bred to do this. You were trained since you could even remember and you were waiting for 40 days to get a really good fight on your hands, all right? And then you get out, you get super excited and this is what comes out to you, all right? It'd be so much better if I could get the mic stand up. Oh, Eric's got us, all right, great. All right, we'll face him, all right? I know, what's going on? There we go, all right. So you Goliath. Yes. Thank you, Eric. This is what you get. Would you be mad? <laughs> All right. I'd be, I'd be a little bit mad. And Goliath, he's, he's furious. And, uh, and, and Goliath says, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? It says that David grabbed his staff. He brought his shepherd's staff out with him to the fight. And so Goliath's saying, you come at me and you brought a stick And Goliath curses David by his gods, and he says, Come at me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Now, this is serious smack talk here, all right? He's saying, All right, little teenage boy, I don't care how old you are. You come at me, I'm ripping your head off, and I'm feeding you to the birds. I don't remember hearing about that in my Sunday school, all right? This is—he meant it, all right? And this is not something—okay, I can't just—yeah, I have (laughs) to—yes, okay— all right, you still get the image, all right? <laughs> now, I love David's response. He says, you come to me with the sword and with the spear and with the javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. Now, hold the phone because I told you I was going to get wound up, and here I go, all right? Because this is where our English translations do a terrible job of capturing the weight of the moment, all right? The name that David is invoking here is Jehovah Sabaoth, bring it. You may read that it says the Lord God Almighty, the Lord of hosts, but it means the Lord of the heavenly armies, the Lord of the host of heaven. David is saying, I do not care about this army of scaredy cats that's behind me, all right? That is nothing compared to the army you can't see. You want to come at me? Then you're coming after me, my God, and every angel and every power that he has. You don't have a clue what you're up against, man. You want to fight me with your puny weapons of war, you uncircumcised, uncovenanted piece of junk. I'm going to kick your sorry behind. Let's go. This is what David is saying here, and I love the next line even more. It's my favorite line in the whole story. He just lays the smack down. He says, verse 46, this day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. I I love that. All right, catch that again. Goliath says to David, I'm going to feed you to the birds. And David says, forget that. I'm going to give you and your entire host to the birds and to the beasts. Bring it. Goliath says, I'm going to kill you. David says, I'm going to kill all y'all. All right? And he runs into battle. And here's the moment where we need to step back spiritually. Do we still believe today that Jehovah Sabaoth fights on our behalf? Do we believe that when we face opposition, that even when our enemy enemy comes after us, that we can meet that opposition in the eye? Now, I understand that you need to resist temptations, flee from temptation, resist the devil. I understand that. But in all the tools that we're given, when we talk about the armor of God that we read, read about in Ephesians 6... Everything in the armor of God, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the sword of the spirit, and everything that we're given, there is nothing given to you for, to protect your back so that you could turn and run. Everything that we are given in our spiritual armor is to be used in an attack position. And we, I look at this and I wonder, why do we back down so often? Why are we so afraid? I think that sometimes God looks at us and he says, I've given you spiritual armor. I have given you every tool that you need to transform this world. And we look around and we can look at each other and say, we have the armor of God. And God's up there saying, yeah, use it. I'd love to lead everybody right where I need to be, where I have uniquely gifted you to serve and to fight as I created you. The fact that God gives us armor leads me to believe we're going to be under attack. And if your walk with Christ never brings you under attack, odds are you are more of a friend of this world than you are of God. And you need to be very careful. Here's the thing is that every, one, every day one of us, we're going to be put six feet under. All right, I heard a black preacher say it this way. They're going to throw dirt in your face, and they're going to go back inside and eat potato salad and chicken. All right? That's what's going to happen to every one of us, unless Jesus comes back first. Do we want to live the life of a coward? Do we want to live the life of fear? Or do we want to live a life saying, Jehovah Sabaoth fights on my behalf. There's nothing I'm going to fear. And another thing I realized, the first part in 1 Samuel we read up until David enters the scene, everybody who is fighting is called part of Saul's army or one of Saul's servants. And David is the first one who stands up and counts himself as part of God's army. God's telling you, I've given you the tools. Go, fight, I've got your back. And even if he doesn't, even if God doesn't bail you out, even if you die, which might happen, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God. Earthly tent, meaning temporary dwelling. If that's destroyed, we have a house in heaven meant to last forever. Church, we need to start living intentionally. We need to start living our lives, making decisions every day that have eternal consequences. And we come to the fulcrum of this story. Goliath moves towards David, and David says, forget that, he runs at Goliath. And he's like, I'm not going to let you be the initiator here. I'm, I'm coming after you, buddy. Let's go. And David runs, he whips the sling, and that stone sails and sinks itself into Goliath's skull. And let the movie play out in your mind, however you want it to be. If you're part of the Philistine armies, you just saw your champion fall to the ground. All right? You, you see that stone coming, you thought, oh, maybe it just bounced off his, his helmet, he's fine, that thing's huge anyways. Your champion's now dead, and you're looking at each other saying, run, all right, you get out of there. If you're in the Israelite army, you see David whipping his sling around, maybe you're one of his brothers saying, man, I remember when I ticked off David, and he hit me with one of those rocks, it was not, this is not going to end well, all right. And you see that Goliath, you see him fall to the ground dead, and then you can just, I like to imagine this moment of silence right after he falls, and then the battle cry rings out, and the army charges the field. If notice this transformation in the Israelite army after Goliath falls, when they realize that, hey, we've won, the enemy's been defeated, we start reading in verse 51, when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shurim as far as Gath and Ekron. The army charges the field after 40 days of being on the sidelines. We tell the stories in our lives of those who take great risks. People who put themselves out there. And most common, this is when most preachers and everyone comes out and says, go out and kill the Goliaths in your life. But actually, I don't think we should be identifying with David. I think we should be identifying ourselves more with the army of Israel. I think David is a great precursor to Jesus. Our Jesus, who defeated sin and death. He just destroyed them. Jesus won the victory over Satan. And so I ask, which victory was greater? David's victory over Goliath or Jesus' victory over sin and death? Because here's the takeaway I want us to have from this story today. That when we understand the power of the victory that we have in Jesus, it should change us. It should get us out of out of the sidelines get us out of our trenches get us out of our place of fear if the victory that jesus had over death truly is greater than the victory that david had over goliath why don't we surge forth with courage why wouldn't we face this world with the steadfastness that god has given us why do we keep living as a defeated people somebody had to start the charge Goliath fell, and there's this moment of silence, and all it takes is just a couple of guys to cry out and start the charge before the whole army was on the field. And man, Jesus told us that if when we go forth, that even the gates of hell cannot stop us. Church, we cannot be defeated if God goes with us. And if that army felt that much courage just by watching the death of a giant by a boy in a slingshot, then how much more courage should we feel when we see the power of Jesus who conquered the greatest enemy, the greatest giant of all. He rose from the dead. He rolled back the stone. He ascended to God's right hand so that he could rule and fight as Jehovah Sabaoth on our behalf. Romans 8.31 31. What shall we say then to all these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? Continuing on in verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus our Lord. What's the worst thing this world's going to do to you? If you're a Christian in America, you probably are not going to die on account of your faith, at least not today. The worst thing that you're probably going to happen they're going to take away your birthday and Christmas, all right? But what's the worst thing this world can do to you? Bury you? You have eternity at hand. We all have these journeys through our life, and as if we go with Christ, Jesus promises us two things. One, this world is going to bring us trouble. Two, he will be with us every step of the way. So why don't we live this life intentionally? Live a life of adventure. Live it with gusto. Take risks knowing that Jehovah Sabaoth fights on your behalf. I don't think that anyone gets to the end of their life saying, man, I'm glad I had a very safe and boring life. I don't think anyone says that. Live a life of boldness. Take risks for the kingdom. Now, don't leave here just not wearing your seatbelt because that's not what I'm talking about. Take risks for God's kingdom. And maybe God will fight on your behalf, and you get to witness his power firsthand. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe that means you'll die. Guess what? That means you get to spend eternity with him. That's a good day. But I want to enter into eternity huffing and puffing, worn out, and then look and see Jesus going, man, that was a great ride. And Jesus says, yeah, come on, good and faithful servant, come and enter into your rest. I want to need rest. I want a life like that. I want to see Jesus and say, man, I could use some rest. And Jesus says, yeah, you do, man. Come on in. I don't want to live a life on the sidelines like the Israelites did, waiting for somebody else to join the fight first. Do you want a life like that? Or do you want a life like what the world is offering you, where you just get to count down the days until your body finally wears out and expires? I don't want that to be my life story. I want to look back at my life and just, I could say about myself that I did not hesitate to enter those situations where Jehovah Sabaoth could fight on my behalf. Let's live our lives like we should be, with the confidence that comes with knowing who fights on our behalf. We're going to stand and sing a song of praise right now for, the, for to our Jesus who overcame sin and death to give us the victory. Let's stand and sing.